This episode is brought to you by the Arvada Center because they're kicking off their summer concert series in June. Relax under the stars at the Arvada Center's outdoor amphitheater and take in acts like Melissa Etheridge, Big Richard, Tower of Power, Preservation Hall Jazz Band, The Spin Doctors, and so much more. Concerts are scheduled for June through September. You can find a whole schedule of events and get your tickets today at arvadacenter.org. That's arvadacenter.org. Welcome to CityCast Denver. I'm Paul Caroli, and you are listening to Mayoral Madness, our effort to get to know all 17 candidates who want to be Denver's next mayor. Today, I'm speaking with Ian Thomas DeFoya. Ian, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. I didn't know that was the title of the show. Yeah. Sorry if you have to do that takeover again, but that cracked me up. No, no, of course, of (laughs) course. Actually, I should ask you as we get started here, I've seen you style your name as Ian Tafoya and Ian Thomas Tafoya. Do you have a preference? Yeah, you know, I mean, I go by Ian Thomas Tafoya. My mom, truthfully, into numerology and vibrations as she says it. So she's always told me go by my full name when I have the chance. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I'll answer to all. Okay. But in writing, definitely Ian Thomas Tafoya. Is that, are you into that kind of stuff? Astrology? You can't not be if you're raised with a mother like mine. Right. Right. Um, well, let's get into it. You've been on the campaign trail for a little bit now, taking you all over the city. Is there anywhere you found that's new or new to you that you love? Well, you know, um, I went to this little coffee shop that's behind uh, the Best Buy on Colorado Boulevard, 925. We had a campaign coffee meet and greet there and I had no idea there was one there. And it was really nice. I Someone from the Mountain Parks Trust happened to be walking through for a meeting in that building. And so it felt like worlds colliding. I live over there. What's it called? Yeah, I don't even remember the name of it. Okay. I'm going to be honest. Okay. Don't put me on the spot like that. Hey, it, well, we'll see. We're, <laughs> we're going places here. I'll look it up on a map right now and I'll tell you. No, no, no. That's okay. <laughs> well, um, So let's get into uh, some issues. Uh, I want to talk to you about something that's been in the news lately. Excel Energy. Energy bills through the roof. Some people are reporting double what they're used to. Excel Energy at the same time reported $1.7 billion in profits in 2022. If you were mayor right now, what would be your message to people? What would you do about this? Well, I've been an advocate, you know, trying to get Excel Energy to be more equitable and fair to energy payers across the state of Colorado mm-hmm. through my day job, um, which I've been on here to talk on the radio before about, you know, personally, we have challenged these rate hikes that have gone through the Public Utilities Commission. I think that it is unreasonable to see that much profit being extracted to Wall Street. It's an interesting time, I think, with Excel Energy because in the coming years, their franchise agreement is up. And so what kind of leverage the mayor's office has at that moment in time um, to negotiate for better prices or cleaner energy are definitely things that are high on my list. You know, We also have to be making investments and pushing from a state level and definitely at the Public Utilities Commission. I personally was disappointed at first with the city and county of Denver wanting to keep the coal facility open until 2070 in Pueblo. It's environmental injustice. And also it's a lemon that is resulting in us paying higher rates. And so we actually led a campaign of 100 days of action on Excel Energy, legitimately protesting in front of their building downtown um, through COVID and working with the Boulder, the city of Boulder and the county of Boulder and the city and county of Denver to change their positions and to advocate with the people for the closure of this and the bringing on of new renewables. 
There's another side of this too, which is the weatherization side of programming. Um, you know, we have the Energized Denver programs. Those are for for businesses, of course. The weatherization, I'm not sure I understand. Weatherization you is you replace your windows, you dial in your systems, you're, so you're using less energy. It's a way for us to get at the problem on one end. So on one end, we're paying high rates because we're still dependent so much on natural gas and the volatile markets of natural gas. And on the other is how much you're using. Hmm. Interesting. Let's move on. One big issue that's going to be on the ballot alongside the mayor's race in April is the Park Hill Golf Course. It's been very controversial. Uh, Denver voters are going to be responsible for deciding the future of the site. Uh, the developers have proposed this big mix of housing and parkland. Uh, where do you stand on I'm the Park no Hill? On I'm a no on 2 I'm a no on 2-0. You know, I, I work in conservation easements. I'm Native American. I believe in protecting open space for there's an intrinsic value to it. And it also hasn't gone to a court. And, and I sit on you know historic denver's board right so we start talking about the impacts to conservation conservation easements in general what i will say is i've been tracking this issue for many years i can remember putting on forums at the same time we were talking about the olympics coming back to denver we were doing them with inter-neighborhood cooperation you know and i've been a zoning and planning chair there for many many years and what i would say is i hear the concerns of the community at large that they want food access they want housing but if you look and i went down to, to city council and testified on this Look at the zoning closer to the TOD. It's industrial mix three, industrial light in the old code. There certainly is a place for us to add more density. And if we were to actually maximize the density in the parcels that are available around the space, I think that the acres per resident in that community would really like to see a larger park. You think the residents want a larger park and you mentioned TOD, that's transit oriented development. Correct. So you're saying you'd be for more density closer to the transit stops. Yeah, and if you look, but you at, do oppose the the current plan. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to see this conservation easement be overturned. I think that there's a solution that can value the open space that we paid for two generations ago, but still help solve some of the issues that people are asking for in the community, which is housing, of course, and food access. From the very beginning, I remember people coming in and saying, "Why can't we have a farm here? Why can't we have a tree?" farm here. So we'd be improving public health for people all across the city and county of Denver. But yeah, what I'm saying is if you look at Blueprint Denver, and for the listeners who don't know what that is, Blueprint Denver was the 20-year master plan for transportation and zoning. I sat on that task force. In that area of change, it is around this TOD, the transit-oriented development closest to the stop. It's in this other land that is directly adjacent to this property. And so I don't buy the the fourth largest park in Denver. We could have the second largest and solve a lot of the other problems at the same time. So are you weird at all if if people say no to this plan that the, de- that the developers would just like throw their hands up and leave? Like, and then once they do who who would take over like how would how would you actually make that better version happen well you know the 2a for parks which is a parks tax that we passed years ago had an opportunity to campaign on that one too there's revenue sitting where we might be able to buy that property the other thing is these other parcels need to be upzoned. Like I was telling you, they're still sitting in low density upzoning. We can go to that and we can find developers who want to develop that, whether it's these developers or another set. They're all looking for financial tools like metropolitan districts. They didn't have the financing to do this without it. So we can offer similar financial tools to 
other developers or the same developer to do these kinds of projects in the same community and add the same level of density that they're asking for. I know you as someone who's been very active and engaged on environmental issues. And I mean, we, we talked a little bit off mic about the Waste No More campaign you spearheaded last year. Denver voters said yes to requiring private businesses to offer recycling and composting. This is a big project for you. So I don't know. I'm just guessing, but I bet you've got a list of projects to make Denver a more environmental city. What would you do? I want to hear some of these ideas like day one. What are changes that are going to make this city greener? Well, I think one of the first things that we need to do is be a leader regionally and a leader in the state. And like I said, I was fighting with the city and county of Denver at the Public Utilities Commission. We fight with them sometimes at the Air Quality Control Commission. I want to dedicate our resources to be advocates in those spaces to drive the best policy change possible. I also have had the opportunity, and again, through my day job, to go to the White House, to be a surrogate, to talk about what kind of money in this Build Back Better agenda can come forward. We need to have a vision of that. Day one, and I've had this conversation with Grace Rink, who's now the head of Climate Action and Sustainability and Resiliency, is... We have a report that says we need to spend $200 million a year if we want to offset the worst outcomes and do our part in climate action. Well, where are we at? Let's take a let's take a tone of where we're at. You know, we outperformed in the sales tax that I also was a part of years ago. And so where are we at on our spending? Where do we need to make it up? That's really important. People want to see the electric school bus or uh, school bike, um, electric school buses. I want to see electric school buses with DPS. I want to see the electric bikes program expanded. Clearly, people definitely want that. I'm interested in how Denver can invest in RTD and open up these bus rapid transits. I was finally happy after 10 years, we saw $17 million go to the Colfax bus rapid transit professional service contract just two weeks ago. And public transit to Red Rocks and the mountain parks is something I've been really about. I think a lot of reasons people have cars here, especially when they move here, right? They're, I'm going to climb all the 14ers. I'm going to be in this outdoor space. Well, if we can add 10,000 10, acres of open space access via transit, I think that's going to make a big difference on car loads and trips as well. Well, we're talking about transit a little bit already. I, I have a question here from a listener uh, that touches on this same topic. Elisa M. writes, as a lifelong public transit rider, I'd like to ask them, the mayoral candidate, candidates, she's saying, what RTD line they utilize, if any. I want to know what actual experience candidates have with utilizing the systems they're designing. Then hopefully your team of transit nerds can follow up with a more policy-driven question on what they think a Denver mayor can do to push RTD forward. So I guess that's my job. But what transit line do you use? Well, I had the 30L that went to my house, but they did away with the 30L. So now it's just the 30 that goes here into downtown. I ride the 76. I ride the West Line. I live in Southwest Denver now. Definitely huge supporter of the 15 and the zero when I'm down in the city. And I, you know, I grew up transit dependent. So I used to ride the school or the bus, the number one to downtown Denver. I would take either the 20 or the 32 to my first job at the Museum of Nature and Science. And for, you know, transitors out there, and I campaigned on this in the beginning, we need to restore dignity to the bus. There's no access to public restrooms. There's no access to water. Uh, there's, you can't really find a bench anymore or a shelter. I have a vision for those. And actually, I don't know if you've ever interviewed James Warren, but he's a big supporter of mine. And we, we've been out building benches and just putting them out. So we're already doing the work that we'd like the city to do. And we used uh, reclaimed uh, emerald ash borer and beetle kill to, to be able to build them as well. Huh. Interesting. I guess a policy question would be, how, how, what's first? How do you fix this big transit problem we have? Because there's, there's RTD that's maybe not necessarily under the mayor's purview. There's the state projects. The mayor can only do so much. What would you do? Well, I'll come back to what we can do to advocate at the state house again. You know, I played a part 
in SB 180, which created the fare free transit, we saw 22% increase in ridership in one month alone. I think we have to find ways to bring the fares down. And the city and county of Denver can put resources in to do that, right? We can give money to RTD to increase the amount of service, uh, level of service that is for the riders here. I also would say, back to what I was saying, restoring dignity. We have to restore dignity. We need to build bus shelters. We need to be build bus benches. I have a vision of having a bench and a shelter made of butokill with a little tiny green roof on it and a little solar panel and a little screen that tells you when the next bus is coming. Because I think that kind of information is incredibly important. And um, right away, we got to start getting public restrooms open. We have to do that. I mean, those are issues that people are talking about. And I think we need to advocate. I've been to other cities where you can get on a bus and they're for charging. You can charge your phone. I mean, those kinds of things are critically important in the day and age we live in to be able to stay connected to information, Wi-Fi on the buses. That's what they've been able to do with busting. And, and I do think that Denver has a responsibility to advocate for the strongest statewide transit network possible because we're at the hub. And whenever at the hub, you have the most to gain. Yeah. And so that, that obviously brings up uh, Governor Jared Polis, who will be a, a colleague of whoever the mayor of Denver is. And he's, you know, he's got his own opinions about how transit should work. He's opposed funding for RTD. How do you expect you'd navigate the relationship with the governor? around transit issues. Do you have much of a relationship with him? I do have a relationship. You know, we've gone back and forth with each other over the years, without a doubt, to pass the Environmental Justice Act. I was just at the Capitol a couple of days ago working with the staff, having conversations about land use and transportation. I think he's definitely committed and understands that public transit is incredibly important for climate action and it's important for equity. We've had great conversations about, for example, let's say you live in Denver, but you have a relative who's in Canyon City. And we know that family cohesion is incredibly important. Can we figure out how busting can be more accessible for people to be able to travel and keep continuity with their families? You know, Mm -hmm. so I think that what I've learned with Governor Polis is that even if you reach a stopping point, it doesn't mean their door is not open to still talk. And I think it's going to be really important for us all to be communicating with each other, solve these problems. And I do think that you're going to see him supporting and his administration supporting more transit projects going forward. Do you think that he's interested in RTD? Because I don't. I don't think, I still think he's not interested in supporting RTD. I think it's going to be the mayor's job to convince him. Well, um, he, you know, there's a transit person over there at CDOT, transit and rail person that I work alongside with that, you know, directly reports to the governor. I think that they're there. I mean, if he needs more convincing, couldn't find a better person who's been transit dependent their whole life really to talk to them about how important it is to fund this for essential workers and for climate action. Let's take a step back. Why do you want to be mayor? Fighting for the people and the planet is really an act of self-defense. A lot of my advocacy and the choices we've made or as the science is telling us is we're not moving fast enough on climate action. That's been the basis of a majority of the laws and legislation that I passed centering workers and those that are most impacted, frontline communities, as they're called, in our decisions. There are really two big ideas that pushed me over the over the top. And that was Headwaters Protectors, which I've been on here talking about, which is sweeps aren't working. I offered a plan to bring festival workers and entertainment industry together to help safely camp and bring stability during the pandemic when they were unemployed. Got all the way to the chief of staff of the mayor and then it died. I took it to the Denver Regional Council of Governments, had great conversations and continued to advocate and work with regional partners. And so that showed me we need regional leadership. And then the other really that pushed me there was 
you know, second day of the George Floyd protests when the violence really started to begin. And day one, I sent a letter with a lot of other people saying, you need to track that ammunition, that non-lethal ammunition. We need to be understanding who's shooting off a majority of that. That's a red flag for people who are, are trigger happy and maybe causing problems in our community. And also, we gathered up, I think five, 600 people came down the third day. We picked up the pieces and we said, yes, Black Lives Matter. Also, this story is linked to the destruction and genocide of Native peoples. We've worked to educate people and get the statues down and into the museums. And that day, Mayor Hancock came out and talked about us in his press release. And I said, okay. And it brought, it brought us to, I think, a better place than just the violence that I was seeing and the destruction of our city. We, yes, Black Lives Matter, but destroying our most prized Civic Center Park and so much more is not something that I'm about. We need to come to a place where we can bring people together and pick up the pieces. And so I would say that those are the two things that really pushed me over the top, right? Climate action and then centering people, beating people, destroying property, not protecting the water. None of that's acceptable. It's not the city I grew up in. It's not the city I want to see. And I want to, I hope that seven generations from now, people will look back and say, I was a good ancestor. That's how I was raised. All right. The flip side of that question, why would you be a good mayor? I think that I'd be a good mayor because I have a track record of bringing people together. And again, this comes back to the values that I was raised with calling in all four directions. If you're familiar with the medicine wheel, red, black, white, yellow, red, elders, youth, you have to call in all four directions. Um, I've shown most recently with the Environmental Justice Action Task Force, where I led an effort with the natural gas industry and so many other opposing points of view together with environmental leaders and the government to reform more than a dozen state agencies. And that is working its way through the legislature and reform through the Public Utilities Commission and so much more. I hope that people see that I'm a person who doesn't just complain, that I roll up my sleeves and I'll go do the work, whether that's picking up trash or collecting signatures, that they see what we've been able to do together. And I hope they can imagine what it would be like if we did it every day, if there weren't these hurdles in place. I want to ask you another question from a listener. This one comes from somebody who identifies as the boys. The boys writes, quote, every week the city council hears from residents in the general public comment session, and the vast majority of complaints are about things that come under the mayor that the council has no power over. Will you commit to sending a mayoral representative to listen to them? The current mayoral staff clears the room as if in denial. I don't know if I have that same observation. Having worked in city hall, I worked in city council. I watched those meetings every day. We didn't have public comment in the same sort of way that they have now where you have the 30 minutes in the beginning, but there are representatives for the staff to answer all of the bill questions for every single bill that is there. I think that they're in that space. I'm sorry that they feel that way. I do think at times you can feel really disconnected. I worked in community engagement for the mayor's office and, and in the city hall. And it used to be you could call Denver City Council and we always picked up the phone. That was a huge priority of my boss at the time. And I still believe in that because you 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 wouldn't believe it when you answer the phone and someone goes, oh, my God, I got a real person here. Mm-hmm. And they're like, I wasn't expecting this. I was expecting to leave like a mean email and, or, or a long voicemail. And uh, I, I do think that they need to be more responsive. I'm sorry. That is the boys. Is that right? Mm-hmm. The boys. That, that they feel that way, that those people are inaccessible. What I tell you is my track record through community engagement in all facets of the work I do from festival works like the Underground Music Showcase where I'm the community director to the work I do now. 
traveling across the state. I mean, most recently, I got a statewide outreach award um, from Recycle Colorado for my work. Um, and so I would say if your fear is that you will not be heard, that will not be true in my administration. So we got a, a batch of questions that we just sort of pick a couple for for each candidate. And, and this week, one of the questions we're asking is, there are a lot of concerns out there right now about how, quote unquote, safe or unsafe Denver is. Public safety is a big conversation. A lot of people talk about crime, police. What do you think? Is Denver a safe place? And what does safety mean to you? Well, I see public health and safety together. And that's why I place them together in my platform. I think it depends on what community you live in. Some communities aren't even safe to breathe the air that they have. Some communities have to filter their water because it's not safe for them. Some communities can't even cross from one side of the street to the other for a major bus line because it's not safe by design. So I think there are some underlying conditions of infrastructure that are greatly impacting the safety of many in our communities. <clears throat> I do know that property crime is something that I hear a lot about when I tell when I knock on doors. And it's something that definitely um, the statistics would say is not going in the right direction. Whereas other kinds of crimes, maybe violent crimes and things, aren't really going in the wrong direction. And so we should celebrate what's working about that. I will say that, um, again, I think it comes back to what community you're living in and how safe you feel. But at the end of the day, I think that property crime is something that is uh, can be addressed and the reimagining police force spent over a year and a half talking about this with dozens of community groups and communities working together to say, these are the kind of crimes that can be solved as we start to fix our economic troubles. So is that the, is that the answer? Just focus on the economy or are there other changes you'd make? Well, I mean, we got to take on our polluters, right? We have to invest in upgrading our water infrastructure. We have to build better roads. But yes, I do think that investing in the economy makes a big difference. I also think investing in youth programs, when you talk about youth violence, I grew up in Denver in a time in the 1990s where they call the summer of violence, right? And the tough on crime mentality didn't necessarily result in the best outcomes for getting these youth back into our communities, right? There was a whole project called the Pendulum Project that took, in a, took a look at the time about what the impacts were for those youth that were charged as adults and what happened to them in jail. A lot of them ended up coming out really more traumatized being put in there as a youth. But at that time, there were investments that were made in the libraries, the rec centers, the museums. I think the investments in the My Denver card is probably the greatest achievement of Mary Hancock's administration. And I think we need to continue to expand what the Office uh, Office of Children's Affairs is doing in social equity and innovation, and what we can do to shore up this inequity. Because I do think at the source of it, the root cause of so much of this crime is inequity. And I think there are a lot of people who work in harm reduction and who work in these communities who would agree so. And I would really welcome people to go take a look at the 112 recommendations that were put forth in the um, Reimagining Police Task Force. Well, you invoked uh, the harm reduction community. I know one issue that's really important to them is the safe injection site. Do you support Yes. Safe injection site? Yes. And I think it's time for the state to move on it so that we can allow it. I mean, I'm a firm believer in what the Harm Reduction Action Center says, which is we have to keep people alive if we hope to get them in treatment. And because I work directly with them, with my work with Headwaters Protectors um, on a regular basis, I'm a firm believer in what harm reduction can do. And I think if people can have a choice to go to a place and know they can stay alive and start to be talked to right? Mm -hmm. And offered services. It's a lot better than somebody smoking on an RTD line or being found shooting up in a King Super's bathroom. All right. Here's another one we're asking different candidates. 
Kind of a fun one. Being mayor comes with special privileges. I'm sure you could call up pretty much anyone in the city and get to know them over lunch. Is there a local celebrity you would most want to break bread with and get to know? How about you? Me? Yeah. You're you a local celebrity. No, I don't know. Go I, to lunch? Yeah, we could go to lunch. You and I could go to lunch. I, I appreciate that's a, that's the pandering. A, that's, that's, a, a, that's a really good question. I, I Maybe like a basketball player, like Jokic. That could be cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe that. I, I will go there because I, I would say almost anybody else. Like, let's talk politicians or people in the music industry. I've definitely had the ability to like interact with them. I would say people from the sports world is something that uh, I don't really tap into with or haven't with my network. Hmm. I like it. I like it. Okay. The last question, this is, I mean, this might be the whole reason why we're doing this project to try to interview every candidate. Cause when, when our host Bree Davies and I were talking about this, we were saying like, what we really want to hear is a vision for the future. What is the future of Denver look like five years, 10 years? And we want to hear candidates lay out their vision. So that's the question. What, what is the future of Denver look like if you're mayor. Well, I really appreciate that. I, I got asked this question just yesterday at the PBS 12 as well. Of like, what would I like my legacy to be? I would really love it that we began taking meaningful climate action in the last decade we possibly could. I'd like it to be the mayor that got you public transit to Red Rock so you can go and, and enjoy your concert. I'd love it to be the mayor that opened up public restrooms in our parks and in our community. So the first time in a long time, a mother or a person riding a bus didn't have to wonder where they were going to go next because they have a need like anybody else. I would love for the blown cloud to legitimately go away. I'd love for us to truly build back better and leverage as much of the billions of dollars that are available to the city and county of Denver now. I'd like our streets to be cleaner with better trash infrastructure available to all. It wasn't like this when I was younger. There wasn't so much litter and we have to center protecting the water. And then lastly, I really would love to be the mayor that even if I only serve four years, brought some level of stability to the unhoused on the streets so they could begin getting the continuity of care that the professionals tell us is the crucial and key part of returning to society. And when people have no ability to store their belongings in a certain place, when you lose your property, when you can't be connected to by the social workers, for jobs, it's so important. And so, you know, I guess in closing, I would say I would love for my legacy to be that we made meaningful progress on some of the biggest challenges that are facing Denver and that we didn't do it alone, that the problems that face our region, our greatest problems, our transportation, our water, our housing, they don't stop at a line that we drew on a map and neither will I. I will go to the Denver Regional Council of Governments. I want to hold that seat on behalf of the city. I want to be at the table with 47 other leaders saying we can do this. There's a level of optimism that I have for what our city can do. And I know that it can happen quickly because we just saw a few days ago or a few weeks ago when it was a cold spell that the people were able to come off the streets and seek the resources they needed. We know during the pandemic that the air cleared and the birds were singing, it's possible. And so I want people to to see a future that isn't so riddled with rhetoric and violence and frustration and us versus them, but really believe that together we rise. Where can listeners learn more about you? Well, you can give me a Google. Um, 
or you can go to Tafoya for Denver.com. I also have a website, Ian Tafoya. You can learn more about me as an artist and some of my past work that I've done. Have a YouTube channel if you'd like to see our speeches or if you'd like to watch a previous debate. I think it's really important for you to see us talking with other leaders. The best thing you can do too is go on that website, sign up, find out where we are, come to an event. You know, we've literally had a coffee hour. Um, in social hours and in uh, every district twice. We're coming back around for a third time. And so we are open and available to you. And if that won't work, then reach out to our campaign. We'll see what we can do to to have a one-on-one. Maybe we can have lunch. Ian Thomas DeFoy, thanks so much. Thanks, Paul. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Mayoral Madness. What we hope is a 17-part interview series with all the candidates on the ballot to be Denver's next mayor. We're planning to publish these episodes each weekend leading up to Election Day on April 4th, and we'll be providing more news and analysis during the week. Subscribe to CityCast Denver and learn more about Mayoral Madness at denver.citycast.fm. We'll be back soon with even more mayoral candidates who want to lead the city.